Talkers. Speaking to Story is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Justice for All, the truth about Metallica author Joel McIver, who is responsible for more than 25 books about rock music, including To Live is to Die, The Life and Death of Metallica's Cliff Burton, with a foreword by Kirk Hammett, and biographies on Black Sabbath, Slayer, Tool, Motorhead, and Slipknot, among many others. He's also the co-author of memoirs from Max Cavalera and David Ellison. Want to support this show? Here's a great way to do it. Go on to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review. Like this one from Helter Skeletor. Great name. A must-listen for Metallica heads. If you're the type of person who likes to geek out about Metallica with your buddies, this is for you. Especially if you enjoy those conversations about how someone first got into the band. Free-flowing conversations that often drift away from Metallica entirely, but still manage to hold my interest. Solid. Or this one from all over this town. Great listening. I don't generally listen to podcasts, mainly because of the quality of audio. I found the quality of Ryan J. Downey's podcast to be way above average, and that made me listen more. His interviews are thought-provoking and insightful, and his knowledge of the subjects makes for an interesting listen. Highly recommended. Thank you all over this town. You can also support the show on Patreon and get access to bonus episodes called for my interview archives, including conversations with Glenn Danzig and Kirk Hammett. You can find Speak and Destroy at speakanddestroy.com and follow Speak and Destroy on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And subscribe to this podcast and the others in the Pop Curse podcast network, including Pop Curse and No Prize from God. So here it is. My conversation with author Joel McIver. This is Speak and Destroy. love to ask you know what your earliest experiences with music were mm. and at what point you realized that this wasn't just something you loved this was something you needed to participate in in mm. some fashion yeah that's a great question it's funny uh <clears throat> considering that i've spent you know most of my career writing about metal i didn't get into it until i was about 17 which is pretty late on music though was like <laughs> everything to me from a really fairly young age. I mean, I was such a geek, you know, didn't really have uh, a social life to speak of when I was probably, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. Um, you know, I imagine I fit the profile of the, of the heavy metal kid, you know, I was a <laughs> clever kid at school, not particularly good at sports, you know, um, withdrew into myself often, you know, into I'm music, checking all these you know. boxes that you're, those are all, um, right. Yep, it's yep, textbook. for me. It's yeah. textbook, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember very clearly when I was, so I was born in uh, 71, so I'm 49 now. Um, and I remember so, 73, about, so we're, uh, we're, we're generation right, X. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting, um, that's good. You know, we'll get the same cultural references. I, I, I always think that if there's a five year spread between people, that's enough so that you don't have the same cultural references. Yes. You know, you know it, 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 isn't that interesting? Because I, I have an older brother who's five years older than me. Yeah. And then one of my best friends, you know, him and his brother are four years apart and they're yeah. like, started a business together, started bands together, live down the street from one another now, you know, yeah. and, and my brother and I, well, I, you know, we love each other and we're, we're, we're homies, but just that one year difference just is like a different, uh, there is something, there is something to be said for that. Right. Um, so I, um, definitely, uh, found a lot of solace in music. I didn't have a, a bad childhood or anything, but I definitely wanted to withdraw into myself. Um, and music was that way. And I remember very clearly for me, 
uh, when I was about 12. It was synth pop, right? So it was, it was Depeche Mode and Soft Cell and some of the new romantic stuff like Duran Duran, which is funny, you know, to think about all the books I've written about Cannibal Corpse and Slayer and, and whatever. But, well, I'm, um, I'm going to jump it, in again it, and tell music you. music that has energy. I, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm going to jump in again just to tell you. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my favorite groups when I was uh, 10, 11, 12 and really getting into music and loving it were Adam and the Ants, Billy Idol, Duran Duran, Aha. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm uh, right there with you. And that was all, that was all the stuff that I loved uh, prior to discovering punk and then leapfrogging directly into thrash metal. And Did then you hardcore, just like, everything Aha. Was yes. That was uh, see, one, of, see, one of my I favorite bands. Of all of that band. And a couple of years ago I had to go and interview them and uh, my wife, oh, wow. you know, had them all over her wall as a teenager. Mm. And uh, one of my proudest moments was getting, um, her to meet Morton Harkett, you know, oh, it, was, it was the funniest moment. I think I, I think I earned some husband points there. You know, I would hope so. so. You know, they're they're hoping to, hoping to cash those in at some point. <laughs> they're remembered as a one-hit wonder in America, but of yeah. course they're massive everywhere else. And I was one of they the are. American fans who bought every 12-inch single for the B-sides, who sat by MTV waiting for the world premiere of the first single from the second album. Bought every yeah, magazine yeah. I could find with them. I actually, I, I had to have been the only adolescent boy in Greenwood, Indiana, right. to bring in a copy of Hunting High and Low to Fantastic right. Sam's and ask the the woman to cut my hair like Martin Harkett, <laughs> <laughs> which she could not well, do, by the way, and immediately hey, immediately gave up. I, I never went as far as the haircut, but I did admire the hell out of those people, and and it does tie in with what I write about now because. I'm keenly aware of melodies and mm. um, catchy content and interesting arrangements in the work of, I mentioned Cannibal Corpse before. They're a perfect example, right? The, the stuff is disguised as extremely heavy, fast, brutal music. But within that music, there are very, very catchy, memorable melodies mm. and riffs that actually do follow certain patterns that are earworms. You know, you, you remember. Them. So all that background I had in... Um, in, in music that was resolutely not heavy metal, really, really did inform my appreciation of the stuff as time passed. Um, so yeah, you asked me, when did it become really important to me? It was everything to me uh, from an early point. Um, and then a friend of mine, I'm jumping ahead, but a buddy of mine who I'd like to credit, his name is John Hoare, and he was my neighbor in the little village we lived in, uh, in, uh, in the West of England. And he played me um, Master of Puppets. Mm. And I remember it very clearly, this is a mad story and other people have said similar things, but he played it. Uh, he, what did he do? He lent me the LP. That was it. And I played it. And, um, this sounds like made up rubbish, but I played it at the wrong speed. <laughs> it was a 45 RPM version of the, of the LP. And I recorded it at 33 RPM. So that was heavy as, as, as hell. Right. I mean like the deepest death metal you can imagine um, to the point where I got used to that version. And when I heard it at full speed, I thought, what is this tinny, speedy, shouty, shrieky crap? And um, so that really got me into really, really heavy music that had tons really? of energy. And then when I did hear it at full speed and I got over the shock of hearing it as it should be heard, uh, it was incredibly fast and exciting and really got me going. And that was it. I mean, as, as well as continuing to enjoy all the poppy stuff I'd, I'd listened to before. Um, and I should say, I also listen to classical music and funk and jazz and, and all that good stuff as well. I really, really got into thrash metal. And um, it was Metallica straight away. For years, I was just a Metallica kid. Um, and then I got into the rest of the thrashers and a bit of death metal and black metal and so on. And all that followed. And you basically, if you're a, um, uh, what's the word, a, a complete person, you, you appreciate all this stuff, don't you? Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't yeah. miss anything. And, and especially if, you, if, you're a, if you're a music scribe worth anything. Yeah. You should have so a, then it became my job, right? So I was obsessed with the stuff and listened to it on a daily basis, everything. Um, but of course, when you are then required to write about it and talk about it and consider it with a professional viewpoint, then it becomes even more important, doesn't it? And you start to appreciate it from a different point of view altogether. So that's really my story as a, as a music fan. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, Metallica were really integral to that. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the number of things that we have in common and the, the overlaps because... And it's funny, you said it sounds like a rubbish story, but I have a very similar story about the, mm -hmm. before I was into metal, the Black Flag Jealous Again 12-inch that I bought from a local record store <laughs> and put on my record player and played at the wrong speed, where it was <laughs> uh, too slow 
and very heavy and listened to it at that speed for some amount of time until my older brother came into my room and informed me that I was listening to the record at the wrong speed. Mm. <laughs> a similar story comes yeah. from uh, uh, Thomas Fisher. Oh, really? Uh, Celtic Frost. Yeah. yeah, he said the same thing. I can't remember which record it was. It might have been by Venom, uh, or it may have been by one of the punk bands that influenced him. Um, but he did the same thing. He played the seven-inch single at, at, at the wrong speed, and the sort of insane heaviness when you do that as well, and the sort of the necro quality of it really impressed him. So yeah, we, we all have a lot to uh, we owe a lot to the humble turntable. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, and its varied speeds. Um, I mean, I still like listening to slowed down music now. I, I think there's always stuff to learn. Uh, when you slow stuff down because in, nowadays of course you can do that very easily on youtube and whatever but yeah. um uh, it, it it reveals its, it's secrets sometimes you know and now that you mention it i believe that there is a widely circulated bootleg of master mm. of puppets specifically the record at half speed or something like that now that we're talking about I'll have, to dig, I'll have to dig around for it but i, I remember coming across hmm. something like that because i remember it even someone had even gone to the trouble of altering the artwork to signify that it's <laughs> that it's that version and i want to say that it was Great. Pressed, pressed on the track vinyl. It down I'd, I'd love to hear it yeah um so what was your first opportunity to see the band and sort of what what era were they in when you had that I master saw them in 88 on the justice tour <clears throat> first I time saw i saw them, them uh... also was 88 <laughs> yeah and again i mean i was 17 i was hardly a, a you know a sort of young heavy metal kid but um uh, i as soon as i got into it i just absorbed it all and um the first thing i bought by them was the garage day vp uh which i want to say came out in um it's 87 i think late 87 yeah i'm trying to think when it was i remember buying that and then we saw them not long after and um my experience of gigs thus far had been i i had been playing bass in small bands just fun covers bands before i even went to see any big bands play um i went to see level 42 play and i went to donnington in 88 uh, wow. which i wow. always remember i mean that was such a mind-blowing experience for someone who's just just weeks or months before got into metal um and i always remember the <clears throat> the lineup so clearly um the day started with uh, Halloween, <laughs> who were great. You know, they yeah. were so much fun because they were on the, the Keeper of the Seven Keys. I was going to say, that was Keeper of the Seven Keys era, yeah. Then it was Guns N' Roses, right? Who, and that blows my mind to think that they were second the second the bottom. Yeah. And uh, it, was a, it was a tragic day because a couple of, um, couple of fans were crushed during, yeah. I don't know if it was during Guns N' Roses, I suspect it was, because the way that Donington or Downloaders it now is, was laid out back then was that it it you, you, uh, it looked downhill, so when there was a when there was a crush towards the stage that was ele that was enabled by the fact that you were going downhill. So a couple of people died, which was pretty shocking. I remember my parents yeah. were pretty terrified yeah. in, in the in the pre-mobile phone era. They sat up all night until I got home to check I was okay. Uh, then I want to say it was Megadeth. Oh no, yes, Megadeth, Megadeth. I think it was Megadeth. Um, and, uh, you know, like 30 years later, when I worked with David Ellison on his autobiography, mm -hmm. I remember telling him, <laughs> I told him that, hey, I saw you play at Donington in 88. Uh, and he was telling me how it was one of the worst days of his life because uh, he yes. was uh, sick from heroin. Yes. And uh, in fact, right after that, they had to cancel a European tour with Iron Maiden because yes. his smack addiction was real. It's, I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny particularly. But I remember <laughs> watching him. And I, I'd started to play bass not long before. And he was one of my heroes. So I was watching his fingers move and thinking, yeah, that's how you play peace cells, you know. Then it was Dave Lee Roth, um, who had, I think, Steve I playing with him. And it wasn't really my kind of music, but I, I loved the showmanship. I had no idea who Van Halen were at that point. You know, I just knew they right. were the guy called Dave Lee Roth. Um, and then it was Kiss, uh, who I wasn't particularly impressed by. Um, I, I have been more impressed by Kiss subsequently when I've seen them play live. And then, of course, it was Iron Maiden, who were um, on tour on the Seventh Sun cycle. I mean, it was this, this insane set. And I read afterwards that it had, um, it had been, you know how a lot of gigs claim to be the loudest gig in history? <laughs> yes, know, yeah, yes. Another one, you know, is it Man of War? Is it The Who? Well, I certainly read it in some Guinness Book of Records or equivalent. Uh, a publication that this Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden at, at Donington in '88 was the loudest one ever. It certainly was very loud. I must have been a good hundred meters away from the stage, and it was horrible. You know, <laughs> it was unpleasantly loud. <laughs> but it was great to see Iron Maiden. So yes, uh, that that was a that was a pivotal experience for me in '88. And then, sorry, uh, it was it's a long answer to a short question, but I, no, this is what we I do. Saw here. Metallica on the Justice tour 
in uh, Newport, which is a town in South Wales, uh, which is a couple of hours drive from where I grew up in England. And um, was I this remember with, I've got with Danzig or yeah. Queensrack and support? It was, da- it was with Danzig, yeah, nice. who I knew nothing about. I remember them playing Mother, but I, I didn't know anything about them. Uh, and I thought they were a bit crap, actually. But again, I, I was new to metal. I didn't really know what I was talking about. Um, and then Metallica came on and they were, I mean, Jesus, man. I mean, they were just spitting fire. They were so good. Um, I've got a feeling they started with Black and as you'd imagine they would. Um, Hetfield's guitar was just monstrous. Uh, and I remember the first encore was Creeping Death. I remember Kirk Hammett played uh, Little Wing by Jimi Hendrix as part of his solo. Mm. I remember Jason Houston did this terrible overdriven uh, bass solo, which I didn't like, even though I think he's amazing. Um, and they had that thing where the Lady Justice statue collapsed in a Dor- Doris. You know? Yeah. And they, and they looked up in a kind of worried way. Um, <laughs> and it was amazing. It was amazing. But you know, I was a teenager, you know, you travel around on co- coaches, don't you? And you, know, and you stand there for hours and you, know, you do all this stuff. Yeah. It was insane. And then a couple of years later, I would have seen Slayer and Megadeth and the rest of them for the first time on the Clash of the Titans tour. So mm-hmm. that was my sort of entree to all that stuff. Yeah. And, well, and it's great that you mentioned, uh, you know, the hindsight being 2020, the historical mm-hmm. perspective that we have now of Guns N' Roses being so early on the yeah. bill at Donington in 88, because yeah, I, I saw Metallica for the first time in 88. It was just prior to the release of And Justice for All. So without the band being on the radio, and of course they're not being an internet to speak of, yeah. it was the first time I heard Harvester of Sorrow because they, right. play- they were playing it, but the record wasn't out yet. But yeah, I saw them on Monsters of Rock, which was wow, really? Van Halen with Sammy Hagar, mm. Scorpions, mm. Dokken, Metallica, Kingdom Come, or Kingdom Clone as, as uh, we call yeah, it. Right. And yeah, similar to the Guns N' Roses thing is, you know, Metallica is second of five on that bill. And I was, uh, because I didn't have a hard rock phase and people might be rolling their eyes or fast forwarding because I've told the story on the podcast before, but so I'll make it quick, but I didn't, I didn't have a hard rock phase. I I leapfrogged directly from Hmm. new wave, new romantic punk. Same as me. It's amazing. Exactly. Oh, wow. And then later on as an adult grew to appreciate. There you go. But at the time, my friend and I, who went to the show with me, we were such diehard thrashers that we were the kids that came in our Metallica shirts and our denim jackets. We <laughs> stood with our middle fingers in the air for all of Kingdom Come. Yep. We watched Metallica and we left. <laughs> now, if I had it to do over again, of course I would watch the Scorpions. I would, I'm very much a fan of Sammy's era of Van Halen. Mm. Mm-hmm. but in that moment i was just like all those bands are posers they yeah. all have poofy hair and spandex yeah i'm here keyboards. for metallica yeah they have keyboards you know get me out of here get me out of here childish perspective isn't it mm-hmm. and yeah, you're absolutely right i was the same and i was the same and people would say to me in subsequent years wait you didn't go through aerosmith deep purple and kiss and and i don't know name a sort of you know i don't know zeppelin in sabbath yeah. And uh, I was like, yeah. no, no. I mean, I caught up on all that stuff very diligently and I really enjoyed it and I absorbed it like a sponge. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. I went from Duran Duran and Aha to, to Metallica. Oh, wow. Is, wow. Which, that, I, I, don't mean, know, I don't know that I've had this conversation before. I don't, think I've, no, I don't think I've encountered anyone who did that exact same. I know, well, I know one guy who did it even more extremely. He went from um, classical music, which was all he knew, to black metal um, because for some reason that, that, that hit, hit a chord within him. Yeah. Uh, without any uh, stops <laughs> along the way so but other than that no i, I also haven't found anyone who did that particularly wow that's uh, that's really cool Funny, uh, huh? yeah yeah because it is there's probably it is lots of a... people maybe maybe there's tons of people like us who did that yeah and you know my and, and very similar to your master of puppets experience and, and mm. you brought up the great david ellison my entry into thrash metal was i had a friend who was into hair metal and hard rock mm. who bought a copy of peace cells on cassette Mm-hmm. thinking that it was going to be a hair metal band. Yeah. Put it in, was like, this is terrible. I can't stand this. It's unlistenable. And gave it to me just to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And it was just, a, I'd never heard anything remotely like it. And yeah. popping yeah. it in, it was just a bolt of lightning. Mm-hmm. And then I immediately became obsessed. And, you know, and this is where the music journalist thing kicks in too. Yeah. I bought a copy of uh, Cream Presents Thrash Metal, issue number one, because it had Dave Mustaine on the cover and I knew he was the guy from the cassette. Yeah. And in that 
issue was an article and it's funny because I think this was 1987. Mm. There was an article, the 20 greatest thrash metal albums of all time, which it's funny to think about how early into the thrash movement that was, but then also right. how, how little that list has changed. <laughs> yeah. No, you're completely <laughs> had, right. It had yeah. rain and blood at number one. <laughs> it had, you know, uh, all three Metallica albums that were out at the time were in there. Right. Uh, you know, but, Probably but anyway, creator record or you creator know, was in there. Yeah. Terrible yeah. certainty was in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I made it my mission to get as many of those records as I could afford with allowance money and, and lunch money over the next several weeks. Uh, that's great. And, and also bands that were in the thanks list and the Megadeth cassette, <laughs> I would, I would look for theirs or, and then anyone, any t-shirts that those, that those bands were wearing and so on, you know, and off it goes. But, but rock journalism, specifically metal journalism played such a significant role to the point right. that mm. I can tell you who wrote that article, which was a guy called Don K. Mm, no, no, no. I, I would meet Don, yeah, many years later mm. in LA, both of us covering film at a press junket somewhere. We would run into each other at those. And then, you know, at some point I heard his last name and I went, wait, you're not <laughs> the same Don K that wrote the 20 greatest thrash metal albums of all time article. <laughs> and he was like, you know, because it's a completely different circle of in, in group Oh, of that's people. great. Though. And he's the guy who came up with the term the big four of thrash. Oh, that's him. Yeah. Yeah, you're I, I didn't it. know that. I, I certainly remember the term from all the way back then. That makes a well, lot of sense. It does. And, and he Good makes it him. very clear. He makes it very clear that the term uh, came about because they were the, the first four thrash bands to sign to a major label. Not necessarily uh, the best. Perhaps not even the biggest at the time, but certainly the best and the biggest. In I didn't realize that was, that was the criteria. I don't know this to be 100% fact, mm. but I have been told in recent years um, specifically by Dwid from the band Integrity, who I feel mm. is the first true metalcore band, that I coined the term metalcore. Wow. <laughs> so I guess Don and I, you know, much less distinguished than the big four. No, but come on. And possibly I mean, I, not true, but it's been, but it's been said by others. Think not how to, many not, kids not to be Donald listening. Trump. People are saying, but, you know, it's a dubious hey, honor. That's good, though. I love that. I mean, I, God, I, 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 I pathetically wonder quite a lot about these things. Who came up with the term disco, you know? Who right. Came up, who came, I know who came up with the new wave of British heavy metal, because that's Jeff Barton, uh, who I've asked about. And, and in fact, on, on the note of Jeff Barton, we, of course, had Kerrang! here, right, in the 80s. And again, I didn't start reading it until I got into metal, but it was, I mean, it was this Bible. I did read a bit of Metal Hammer back then. Metal Hammer now is amazing. But back then in the 80s, it was kind of awful. It was, you had all this black ink on a dark blue background. <laughs> um, briefly, we had Raw magazine. We, of course, had Metal Forces. Uh, yeah. And I got into all this stuff. And the media then had so much power. And I mean, I'm the editor of a magazine now, a uh, bass player, and we serve a, a, a niche loyal community. And we sell a bunch of copies. But, you know, the, the days when you and people like you would go, and buy a ton of albums based on a list yes. <laughs> written by Don Kay. Yes. Those days are probably gone. Uh, and I remember doing the same thing. I remember even thinking um, later on, anybody, any album that had a cover drawn by Ed Repka, that was worth checking out. Oh, sure. Wow. Any album, any album on Roadrunner, that was worth checking out. And for years, yeah. that was true. Um, big, uh, but, but now, of course, and I'm sure we'll get into this now, of course, everything's different, you know, because we get our information from hundreds of other sources. Yes, indeed. And, and that brand identity too, there was a, there were different, definitely eras of different labels, earache. We could name a bunch of them, right? Where you oh saw that, lo you saw that noise. logo on the back of something noise yeah. and you knew like, this is, this is for me. I'm yeah. Gonna, maybe I'm later on this. in the death metal era, there are more, more of those smaller labels that are into that stuff that, that whose name would, would be a, a sign of quality. Earache. Yeah. That was interesting earache because um, I am occasionally asked about British metal, right? And, uh, what its role is nowadays. And to me, there's this, there's this crossover point in about 1983-84 when heavy metal went from being a Brit British-dominated thing to an American-dominated thing. And in mm. fact, Metallica, I think, are mostly responsible for that and the, and the, the great trash bands that followed them. And yet a uh, band who was very inspired by everything British. Right. And believe me, this leads me on to so many conversations I've had with, with uh, you know, Martin Popov? I'm familiar, but I don't know him personally. Canadian writer, Bob Nelbandian. Have you met Bob? I just had Bob Nelbandian. The episode's not out yet. Or actually, it is out yet. It just came out right, this right. week. 
But yeah, I cool. just had so them whenever on. I meet those two, which I do every year or two, nice. those those two guys are uh, Nwabum, New Wave of British Heavy Metal, like freaks. I mean, they will name the, the catalogue number of a particular seven-inch single. <laughs> um, and what's hilarious is that that stuff was not big over here, apart from Maiden and Saxon mm. and Leopard, right? I'm not disrespecting any of those bands, but they were all very small below those three huge ones. Whereas the American guys, um, such as Metallica and Anthrax, and and you know the rest of those dudes were, were obsessed with it. And, and they thought and of they, Tigers they, of Pantang as as on par with you know. You know, Aerosmith. I mean, okay, yeah. I, I, so I get I get that Venom had an impact everywhere. You wouldn't really mm-hmm. call them a new wave of British heavy metal band, I guess. That's something for experts on the thing to talk about. But it, it was this kind of laughable biker rock with ridiculous imagery that that people laughed at, other than mm-hmm. <laughs> in certain parts of America and Germany where it was huge. Um, and it became hugely influential, and that, that blows my mind. And so, uh, the, what, yeah. the point I was yeah. making was that uh, Britain, we had Sabbath and Priest and Motorhead um, and, and Maiden, of course, uh, and Saxon. And, and that, the world bowed to British heavy metal yeah. uh, through the 70s and into the first part of the 80s. But when Metallica came along and the rest of the Thrashers, uh, and then I guess you had death later on, and then you certainly had Pantera into the nineties. Then that was it. And it, it, Britain now has a couple of classic metal bands and a bunch of cool underground bands. The reason I'm saying this is because of uh, Eric, who were a sort of yeah. an anomaly um, because they signed Morbid Angel, uh, but they also had Carcass and Napalm Death and, mm-hmm. and a couple Bolt of bands. Yeah, yeah. Bolt Thrower, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the reason I'm the reason I quite often consider Eric is that they were the standard bearers and the flag bearers in a way uh, during this transition. Mm, yeah no that's interesting that's a that's a great point i never thought about it and, and i love mm. i nerd out on the same stuff too about the the context and the you know the narrative story and through lines that you can well we as journos we we tend to do that don't we we draw the yeah. big picture and stroke our chins a lot and say well you'll find that you know, yeah. whereas yeah. The, the average person in the street <laughs> is less, less concerned with that stuff <laughs> this is this is very true we count right. measure and contextualize yeah uh, i you know it's interesting you're talking about british culture and and the various impacts and everything and and the perceptions of of one thing in one place versus another to that point you know Mm -hmm. as i mentioned being a huge aha fan and aha not really being big in america beyond the one song and and adamant even he had his his moment here but was never anywhere near the sides that he was overseas but well he had that whole punk new wave background thing going on didn't he yeah yeah. just like much like billy idol they were both 80s pop stars but they both came from that Mm -hmm. punk scene uh but uh this the british thing makes me think about one of the things that has been extremely influential in terms of my formative years and shaping my sensibilities particularly when it comes to comedic sensibilities you know, yeah. I love I love comedy, and you hear a lot about Monty Python, of course. But for me, it was the Young Ones. Mm, I knew you were going to say that, and I only encountered the Young Ones because MTV, when MTV didn't have much programming, and just showed every music video they could find, uh, except from Black Artists, which was a whole other yeah. conversation. Mm, yeah. They they used to run what at that point I think were old episodes of the Young Ones at like midnight on Saturday nights. I had no I would, idea. I would tape them with the VCR. Yeah, and would watch as I'm having my cereal before going off to school. I would watch <laughs> the young ones. Just so, and there were only there was a finite number of episodes. Oh, so not many. It, they did, they did something like two eight episode series. Yeah, and it was and it so it was yeah. pretty quickly. I had seen all of them and then mm. just kept recycling through them to where they're like muscle memory. And and I you know I loved Madness and Madness was on the show, mm-hmm. but the young ones was my first exposure to Motorhead. Um, man, for, for a lot of, of spades in the living room. <laughs> For a lot of us, Motorhead had this habit of showing up on kids' TV shows. There was a um, an, an anarchic TV show here called Tis Was, which you may have heard of. It's called, mm. that stands for today is Saturday Watch and Smile. So Tis Was. It was mental. And it was hangover TV for adults and their kids. Mm. Kids would watch it too. And Motorhead were on that. Um, wow. and, and Lemmy did a big thing about these novelty songs, didn't he? He did, that, he did Stand By Your Man, didn't he? With Wendy O. Williams and a few mm-hmm. other things like that. But the young ones, dude, we could, we could talk for hours about the young ones. It is a blip in British comedy that is unbelievably special. Um, a lot of the humor is, is, is bizarrely childish, but, a, yeah. but yeah. a lot of the lines are just endlessly quotable. Mm-hmm. And the situation itself was mad. 
And the, the history of it, if you've ever looked into it, they had to sell it to the BBC at the time of a very traditional old, old fashion institution as a variety show. Yes. <laughs> you, see, you probably know this, the BBC yes. would only fund it if there was music <laughs> and, and all this stuff, which just shows you, you know, the stuffed shirts that they were at the BBC at the time. Um, and it was, it was a one-off, man. That they could never do that again, never bring it back. I, I, I would walk into school the day after a Young Ones episode had been broadcast and we would be doing Neil impressions oh, and right. Alexi Sale yeah. impressions and, of, and most of all, most of all, always Rick impressions, right? To the point where my friends would habitually speak like Rick. Um, oh, there you go. It was mad. Completely it's, mad it's interesting you said Alexi Sale because he's kind of the unheralded, because mm -hmm. he's not on that Mount Rushmore of the four archetypes because he was like the utility player, right? That would do the yeah. landlord and the... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but I love that that setup of, you know, the yuppie, the hippie, the punk, uh, you know, the anarchist, leftist. You know, I, uh, those, those I got archetypes. to interview Adrian Edmondson a few years oh, wow. ago, who wow. was Vivian, for those who don't know. Of course. Yes. And uh, he now has, uh, a, a, it's a folk band that does punk covers. So the punk covers in a folk style. I got to look for that. Which is, is as cool as you think. And um, he was an actor in EastEnders, the big old, uh, soap here that runs that's been running forever and uh i asked him i said look I, I, of course i'm a big fan of what you do but <laughs> obviously i need to talk to you about the young ones and he sort of rolled his eyes and went oh god yeah of course yeah, there we go. yeah. Um, because you know it happened in his young career and he was never going to get away from it and i said look <laughs> how do you get away from a legacy like that and he said yeah it is actually kind of a pain because people 40 years later run up to him the street you know and Asking about psychology and extreme violence <laughs> right right and where, where his head gets cut off on the train you know and he kicks it down the track yeah. and all that mental stuff yeah. and he sort of goes oh god okay but it was just you know and he spoke on the phone it was a phone interview and his voice was vivian that's the funny thing yeah mental i think my, i think so i think my it was, it was a great great thing i think my facebook profile under education still says scumbag college <laughs> <laughs> university they, challenge they, yeah. And they evoked the particularly shit nature of university education at the time, <laughs> which was which was just pure poverty and awfulness. And uh, it's so well done. It's amazing. And, and yeah, the and the DVDs. I, you can only get it on DVD. I think it's not available anywhere else. I have the two of them here, and I break them out every now and then, and just spend an afternoon just just embedded in it. Yeah, the 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 as you mentioned, like the kicking the head down the tracks, the uh, absurdism, and the you oh, know. Yeah. Neil finding his old bike in the bath and you know, just like the moment to me, I remember this crystal clear as a kid. Cause I remember the first time I saw it and how much I lost my mind. And it's that if, if I ever want to point to like, what is the humor of this show and show it to somebody, there's a scene where all the guys are arguing about something and there's a big commotion there in the kitchen as always. And the camera just does this slow pan. And then there's like a hamster, like a puppet, a very yeah. crude yeah. puppet, and it just zero, zooms in slowly on the hamster, and then the hamster <laughs> just looks right at the camera and says, "Don't look at me, I'm irrelevant." And then the camera whips <laughs> back to the guys, and that to me, was, it gives me goosebumps talking about it now because it was literally just like that's I love the such a specific thing. and unique kind of humor. And the yeah. hamster's Scottish for no reason. I think I can't remember. Oh right, <laughs> was there an equivalent American show? Oh, occupied God, no. the same cultural territory god no um i don't think so and you know it's it's interesting again in, in terms of the crossovers you mentioned east enders mm. i'm only familiar with that reference via ricky gervais and extras <laughs> because one of the characters is barry from east enders <laughs> so i know what so i know what east enders is via the context of that character on that show yeah yeah uh, it's amazing is, ricky gervais is really really uh Crossed the Atlantic incredibly yes. well. Um, that we always had a, a cliche here in England that Americans don't understand the concept of irony. Mm. Um, and he was one of the guys who busted that wide open and said, are you kidding? Look at Curb Your Enthusiasm. Look at The Simpsons. Look at Rick and Morty. Look at whatever you want to look at. You know, irony is alive and well in the American psyche, believe me. And that was an important lesson, I think, that a lot of Brits needed to learn. Mm. Yeah, and I... And I... Area as, as we think we are. But, you know, when you, but when you ask if there was an equivalent uh, to the young ones here in the eighties, uh, there wasn't, and maybe that was that reason there wasn't, yeah. I can't think of anything that was that absurdist and that was social commentary in a way that wasn't browbeating 
Right. And, and that, yeah. And that variety show setup, uh, just, you know, the fact that you just suddenly have motorhead playing in the living room, is just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just such a, such a great device and was such a way to, to broaden the appeal, you know, and people tell me whenever I talk about the young ones and I still, it's on the life to do list. Yeah. But there, there's a show, what was it called? Belly? Or there was another show that, that Adrian Evanson and Rick Mayle Bottom. did together. Bottom, that's what it was. Um, I'm assuming that it's maybe not as good, but I'm uh, told no, it's People it's love worth it. It. It, just, it just couldn't possibly have the same impact. It is really good. Um, and it's, it's uh, 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 but it, it, yeah, but I, I said it already. It couldn't, it couldn't quite be the same. But yeah. no, it's good. It's, it's uh, pretty much all the time. It's just a slightly different setup and it doesn't have meal, you know. It's, uh, no, it's good. Yeah. You should check it out. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, Tommy Boy is a perfect comedy. And then Black Sheep, while it's the same two actors and very playing very similar characters, it's just not the mm. same. So. Uh, yeah, I was reading, um, I've just spent the last couple of weeks reading Watchmen with my son, mm. uh, the, the graphic novel. Sure. And then we watched the film, we talked about it. He's 14, so he's old enough to have his mind blown by this stuff and not be yeah. disturbed by it. You know, and you yeah. can appreciate the deeper, deeper concept. And then you and can uh, tell him, the, the guy who wrote this says he worships a serpent. <laughs> Alan Moore, did he say yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he describes himself as a wizard, doesn't he? And the reason I mention this is that there is a prequel, isn't there, called Before Watchmen, which came out uh, subsequently. And is is a comic book series, but, but people say, look, you cannot capture that lightning in a bottle twice. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it, I haven't read the, the prequel rather. I'd like to, but I, I haven't done. Um, and I imagine it's it's uh, it, uh, that that it, there is a parallel there between uh, the young ones and bottom in that you know, you can try and you can do a good job. You know, you, the, uh, Mayans MC is good, but it's not as good as some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For example. You know. Yeah. Are we are we describing death magnetic right now? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, this is I, I, I. Metallica. In fact, a conversation about Metallica in the last ten, fifteen years is 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 almost of more interest to me than a conversation about the classic stuff because because we know that the early, the early classic albums are just are just shining beacons of amazingness. And it's all um, it's all it's canonized. <clears throat> and I often have guests on who don't want to talk about anything beyond album four and five or sometimes album yeah. three no i mean Every, people they're drop all off interesting and they yeah. all they all have they all bear discussion i absolutely think i mean i believe me my starting point here is that metallica are an amazing band an incredible band the led zeppelin of, of this generation or whatever um but but they <laughs> have described an erratic trajectory um and i <clears throat> so i a, a quick plug I, I i've written a couple of books about them first mm -hmm. one was called God, it sounds so pretentious. Justice for All, The Truth About Metallica. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2004. My God, I'm still talking about it in 2020. Yeah, that's okay. um, you, you, you've guided me right into what I was going to oh, bring cool. up anyway. So. Well, it was, it was a big <laughs> hit, two, you know. two music journalists more or less interviewing <laughs> yeah, one another. Yeah. That's how that's, how that's going to go. Good at plugging our own products, right? <laughs> but uh, it uh, came out in 2004. It was a big hit. Bestseller in a couple of territories. Sold a ton of copies in like 10 languages and so on and so on. Um, not because... Um, not because it's so brilliant, uh, but because there was no big, uh, big sort of doorstop size book about Metallica at the time when they needed to be. It is a good book, but it's not. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not. What is it? Not. I can't think of a title of a book that's amazing. It's not. It's, it's not, not um, uh, Hammer of the Gods. <laughs> Hammer of the Gods. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a decent book, anyway. And then I did a book about Cliff Burton, which was equally successful and much yes. more critically successful. Uh, called To Live Is To Die. I'm good at, good at naming books after song titles by Metallica. Well, I mean, um, that one's perfect because that's the, you know, oh, yeah. famous posthumous. So, oh, yeah. Right, right, right. So the, the, everything lined up about that book. But the, the point I was going to make was um, I received an awful lot of criticism uh, after the first book um, from um, our friends on the internet uh, because I was, I was extremely harsh in that first book about every album after Justice For All. Um, and I've talked about this a lot. You know, I did a podcast a few years ago. We talked about this. I've done a bunch of TV and we talked about this. I wrote that book when I was, uh, I know, 32, um, full of venom, you know, about how shit load and reload and sent anger were. Um, were I writing that book now at the age of 49, I wouldn't go in that hard, of course. You know, that, that's just your viewpoint changes. You know, you're not, everything's not as black and white as it once was. So, Although back then I might well have been the guy you just talked about who would not mm. talk about any Metallica album beyond Justice or Black Album, arguably. That's not me now. And uh, 
you, you, your perspective grows, doesn't it? And you, and you understand things in a less childish way. And you understand that everything has merit. Um, and I will listen to Load and Reload uh, and, uh, and um, Saint Anger and even Lulu. I'll listen to them and I'll give them a time of day, which I think is the difference between a mature viewpoint and a, and a less mature one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, man, I'll listen to those things and I'll, and I'll try to enjoy them. And um, even though my, my uh, experiences with those albums have been largely negative, I still appreciate that, that they made them and they put in their creative effort and, and that all that goes away when they play a show. Because when they play live, they've got an unparalleled catalogue of songs to choose from. It doesn't matter if the recent album was no good or not, because you know you're going to get all those great songs. And I would argue um, that Load and Reload also provides some dynamics in their set that might not otherwise be yeah. present, you know, when they go straight yeah. from Damage Incorporated into Fuel or what have you. You right. know, there's like a moments yeah. of, of uh, dy- dynamics. I, don't, you know, I guess it's not a better word for it. And I've but said you, many times... Fuel, you've chosen a good song, you know. If, if they'd gone into Ronnie, I suggest that... that <laughs> You, you would not appreciate the dynamic change in the set at that point. <laughs> I have to say, I think one of the biggest mistakes, if I, if I were able to be in the, have been in the room and helped with the sequencing, opening the load and reload era with Ain't My Bitch was, oof. It took me a good six months to go back to the record because I couldn't get past the first song. Well, that's where we differ. I, I think Ain't My Bitch is one of the better songs on uh, Oof, that that's one of That's one of the absolutely... Uh, yeah. That's one of my Torben... Torben Ulrich... Er, 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 gosh. You should delete Torben that. I Ulrich. recommend that you delete that. Yes, you know where I was going. Uh, I don't know why I said that like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but... <laughs> but the, but the, the Outlaw Torn <laughs> is a top 10 Metallica song for me. Well, there's, there's gems and on Bleeding there. Bleeding Me is a great song. I, yeah, I, I celebrate it. And, and my argument is that the the thing the, the only thing that frustrates me I understand people that don't relate to different eras mm. of the band for different reasons. The only thing that I ever get up in arms over is when it's categorically dismissed as commercially minded or careerist or <laughs> because I don't feel that Metallica ever does anything for those reasons. And I think that in the '90s when they were wearing designer clothes and putting on makeup and playing Lollapalooza and I think a lot of that was they loved Soundgarden they loved Alice in Chains they were going back to their Thin Lizzy records I feel like in that era were they to have dressed and smelled and looked and acted like Master of Puppets Metallica that would have been a a form of selling out because that would have been a pose you know I don't don't feel like they were posing when when you know when Lars was trying to kind of remake Metallica as U2 or Oasis I think that's because we was what right. he was into, just like he used to be really into Diamond Head and Motorhead. And eventually, as they get older, it all comes back around full circle. And you know what makes me laugh now, with the benefit of, of 25 years or 24 years since Load, is seeing how Hetfield struggled with all that. Mm. In the photo shoots, he's not wearing all that stupid stuff. Um, he had a haircut, he had a short haircut, he wasn't putting eyeliner on. No, and um, some of those Anton Corbin photos from Reload, you know, Newstead's wearing just like a Sepultura hoodie. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, now, all these years later, it's hard. It's hard. I can't remember why I cared so much, frankly. Um, I yeah. think I was just so obsessed with songs like Disposable Heroes and Motor Breath and Fight Fire with Fire. And I was all about the energy and the speed and the violence that when I did hear uh, Bleeding Me or whatever it may be, um, I just felt un, unmoved and that, that to my uh, slightly juvenile mind was not what I wanted from Metallica. And, um, and actually then once you skip past those records and then they make an attempt to come back to sort of heaviness, that, that stuff has largely left me, left me flat, I think. Um, I, I, my respect for Metallica has grown. My interest in their new music has waned, I think. Mm. Um, I like, I've met them all now since about 2000 I've met them all many many times um, and I've always had a good time with those guys but and they're, to, and they're aware I mean obviously the, the Cliff book um, but they're aware of, of the prior book also uh, so they're definitely aware of the Cliff book because Kirk did the forward that's what I mean yeah um, the first Metallica book they are aware of it because Lars told me that they were whether anyone's mm. read it other than their legal department checking for libels I don't know 
I wouldn't expect them to. My God, would you in that position? No. I mean, there's 10 sure. books about them. The best book about them is written by my friend Mick Wall. That came out a few years after mine, and he did a really, really good job. Um, I used to like uh, the original Metallica book, which is by K.J. Dorton. Have you ever read that? That's the one I haven't, I haven't read that. No. I mean, it's not the best book in the world, but it's, it was the first one out. So it kind of, and he I, ran their fan club, I think in Oregon or somewhere from. I should hunt that down because I've, I've read both of yours and I've read hmm. um, McWall's. Uh, cool. But yeah, that one I haven't. I don't think one I've day they'll do their own book, won't they? You know, that'll be the, that'll be the, that'll be the, the proof in the pudding. Um, maybe, I, I'll, I maybe, maybe I'll be the guy that writes the, the passionate defense of the load reload years. <laughs> There is a there is a big gap in the market for that one, my friend. Isn't it crazy uh, <laughs> that, that, that I mean, Load celebrated its twentieth anniversary like a couple of years mate. ago. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's right, like... right. It came out in ninety six. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I can't I can't really criticize them heavily in the way I used to. Yeah. The only thing I would say is that the last two records have been a bit dull, and that could be that metal has changed. You know that that there's so much much more exciting, faster, heavier, more interesting metal around. Whereas there was not, right, in 1986, 1987, not, not more than Metallica. Um, you know, the big picture is what will happen to them? What, how long will they keep going? Um, will they continue to do the giant tours and play the giant stadiums with the giant production? I've got to talk to you, actually. You may have been going to ask me about this, about the Big Four of Thrash um, yes. event, uh, which I was asked to go to. Sorry, go on. I, oh, I was just going to jump in quickly before we wrapped up about the new records. Oh yeah, I loved Death Magnetic when it came out, mm. and I think a lot of it was sort of willing myself to love the mm. spirit of it. Same as me. There were a lot of familiar sounding parts and so on, and of course everyone's talked to death about the mastering and this and that. But I did think it was a really great record. The problem with it is that I, I don't find myself revisiting it. Oh man, no. it, it was like okay, this is great, yeah. and I was thought yeah. it was great for a few months, and then sort of forgot about it. Whereas, yeah. and with a couple of exceptions, there's you know I actually really love Unforgiven Three. I do but, too. Uh, yeah, I play it all the time. Have you seen the new S and M two? Yes, uh, in fact, oh. I, I uh, you may know. Do you know Andrew Carter? Andrew to, Andrew Carter. He used to be the deputy editor at Terrorizer. Uh, He's an American, but he lived in the UK for. A I, I've met a bunch of the Terrorizer guys, but not him. Well, he uh, he and I went up actually for the first night of SNM two and, and oh, got wow. to see it, um, right. which was which was really cool. But oh, but yeah, God. but yeah. but hardwired, I, hardwired, I un- unapologetically, and still currently, really love. And I think right. that there's a lot of depth to that record, and I feel like it has. I feel like it's a bit more comfortable than Death Magnetic. I feel yeah. you know some of the yeah. the vocal harmonies from the Black Album and even the Load and Reload era have returned yet with the aggression and heaviness, you know, that they revisited on, on death magnetic. So yeah, I, I do, I do love hardwired and I, and I will say that the, I appreciate Saint anger. I'm glad it happened. <laughs> I'm glad I kept the band together. I don't listen to it. Um, if they break out frantic or something live, I'm not, you know, angry or anything but it's not my favorite stuff <laughs> well that that's what they call damning with faint praise if they play a song i'm not angry well that that's good isn't it? i'm sure lars would be happy to hear that right <laughs> <laughs> and i gotta say and, and you may have you may have read his his essay about this but when i had alex skolnick on the show mm. he was the first person to put lulu in any kind of a positive context for me yeah I mean, I, I wrote um, a reasonable review of Lulu. I remember at the time uh, it was in Record Collector magazine. I still listen to Junior Dad on a regular basis. Um, it's not a Metallica song, is it, really? Right. But I love it. I, I find the uh, there's something about the last 10 minutes, 10 minutes of, uh, of Chamber Quintet, whatever it is, that just blows my mind every time. Um, but the rest of it, I, I went to the playback. And the problem is, I don't know, like you, you probably go to these playbacks too. For the last four albums or whatever it is, going all the way back to St. Anger, I've gone to the industry playback. And of course, they ply you with drinks and they play it really loud and you're with all your friends and you really want to enjoy it. Oh, fucking hell yeah. Woo, and it's Metallica. So yeah. <laughs> and you're so pleased and you've got the specter of the loads in your head. So, you, so anything that's loud and, and a bit nasty, you appreciate and then a week later, you think, I'll play it again. And you do. And then you don't play it again, ever. And um, yeah. that to yeah. me is, I, I, I am torn, Ryan, between concluding that the music isn't as good or that just I'm not as big a Metallica fan. 
now because I'm not 18. I'm nearly 50. You know. Time, 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 place, and circumstance. You know, right. that plays so much into, you know, I often cite this story. I had a, an argument with, with a friend once about he was determined to convince me that not only was Seasons in the Abyss the <laughs> superior and greatest Slayer album, but that that was the conventional wisdom. Oh, right. And then I realized as we were going back and forth about it, that's the record he discovered Slayer on. Yeah. So, of course, to him, that's the magical, and it's a great record. But, yeah. uh, and, and that, that's, kind of, that's when I developed my theory about time, place, and circumstance. And, and, and how, I think you're 100% right. You know, yeah. the number of times I've read on an, in an internet uh, article, oh, yeah, Metallica debuted with the Black Album in 1991. And you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I can't say I've met that many times. I read it a couple of times and it just, just made me shake, shake my head. Um, yeah. Yes, there is, a, there is a big thing. I mean, I, I tell you what, I uh, strive at every moment to resist the thinking that music used to be better than it is now. Because if you do, you're dead, right? You're old and you're past it. If you think that music was better, you're wrong because you can't be right because it's subjective. If you, I don't know if you have kids, but I have two teenagers. I do. And, right. I have two. And they teach me on, on a daily basis, Ryan, about how much cool music there is out there. Mm. It may not be music that, like, you know, I love. It may, it's not for me. It's not written for me. It's written for someone who's 16 or 18. Um, and I hear the energy and the vibes, and, and I do hear the influences of what has passed. But if it, it's not for someone like me. I don't mean that I'm 100 years old. I just mean that it's not for me to say, oh, music's just not as good as it was. So I yeah. see on Facebook all these memes, you know, oh, Led Zepp, I saw Led Zepp, you know, yeah, you think Bring Me the Horizon is good, oh, you're wrong. Right. I, I laugh at those things, but I don't endorse them because you are, as you just said, a product of your environment mm. and your circumstance. And if, if, if I were 15 years old now, or if you and I were 15 years old, we would be saying to ourselves, there is so much good music around right now. Metal or yes. otherwise. You know. And you know, this um, is a, a great point that, uh, Andy Beersack from Blackville Brides made yeah, to me yeah. a few years ago where he said, you know, every time that a band like Blackville is dismissed by the old guard as yeah. it's not Led Zeppelin, it's not Black Sabbath, it's not Metallica, it's not Guns N' Roses, th you're, you're robbing them of the space even to develop into something special. You know, if you've categorically dismissed a group of 19 year olds on the basis of, well, this isn't as great as the old stuff right out of the gate, you know, give it a moment. <laughs> I don't know if you're, so I, I, I take Andy's point there. I interviewed that guy a couple of years ago. I liked him. Um, I don't think you're robbing a band. I think you're invalidating yourself. You're taking yourself out of the equation and, and you're denying yourself the right to criticize because you're not engaging. Um, so this is all much about people hitting a certain age, uh, diminishing people who are younger. And mm. it's not right. You know, it's, it's tempting. I get it. I totally get it. The number of bands I hear and I say, my God, that's just, re, re, uh, what's the word, recycled uh, Metallica Pantera. And it is always Black Owl Metallica and it is always Vulgar Display Pantera. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not for me to make that point over and over again because I'm not helping. It's not a constructive criticism. And I often wonder, and this is, you're the perfect person to, to bring this up to since we're essentially the same age and same generation mm -hmm. and, and clearly have so much in common that we didn't even realize terrifying isn't it yeah. <laughs> indeed when, when i when i think about even the same number of kids when i think about <laughs> avenge sevenfold as a classic example they really are they're a band that, that fits the bill of what you described if you hear the yeah. black album and you hear use your illusion one and two interestingly more than <laughs> yeah. appetite even yeah and yet when i watch a clip of them performing at, at download or you know some huge festival you just think who is anyone of our generation to want to take that experience away from that crowd? Yeah. And, and, and then I also, then I also wonder when people who are the age that we are now, when Metallica was emerging, for example, mm. were they hearing it and going, this is just poorly played. Yeah, they were. Zeppelin I, know, and Sabbath I, and, I remember the know. reviews. I remember the reviews very, very clearly. I remember people, uh, and I, there are a whole bunch of journalists that I know from Kerrang who are now uh, around 60, you know, mm -hmm. 10 years on me, maybe 65. Um, and those guys all grew up on Deep Purple and Sabbath and Zeppelin. And when Metallica came out and started playing very fast and shrieking, they hated it. 
And then when Bathory came out, and the whole point of Bathory was that the production was necro and sounded like it was in a bathtub, mm. they, they couldn't engage with it. Um, so there was that very much. And then there's a generation before then, believe it or not, there is a writer here called Chris Welch, very famous writer in certain circles. Um, and his big thing is Cream and Hendrix and, and all those guys of the Jan Wenner generation, right? You know, <laughs> the, 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 you know the, those original um, people. What's the name of the guy who wrote that famous? Oh, well, Jan, Jan Wenner, I'm also thinking Bob Lefsetz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Royal Marcus, is that a name? That's someone, isn't it? Yeah, they, the, the people, uh, there was a guy here called um, Charles Shaw Murray. I mean, th these are people who are now in their 60s and, and maybe even 70s. Um, and to them, Deep Purple was, was a noise, you know what I mean? Right. And, uh, yeah. anything I else mean, Rolling like Stone famously trashed the first Sabbath album, which of yeah, course yeah, created right. an entire genre of music. <laughs> yeah, Right, it's, it's, it's nuts. So yes, every generation criticizes negatively the one that follows it, and I try to break that cycle because I think Same. it's unhelpful. Yeah. yeah, and as a journalist, you know, I spent a, a number of years. It's a, a chapter that has since closed uh, about four years ago, but there was a, a stretch of almost ten years where I did something like a over a dozen cover stories for the magazine Alternative Press, and it was a yeah. very specific era in that scene where I was writing about bands like Pierce the Veil, Sleeping with Sirens, mm -hmm. Black Veil, Asking mm -hmm. Alexandria, who were at their peak and, and recognizing yeah. that with some exceptions, for example, I think Pierce the Veil is uh, extremely talented and awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and Andy, Andy uh, from Black Veil has become one of my best friends and, mm. and, and my attempt to uh, follow in your footsteps. Um, my first published book is arriving in December, which is a oh, book, what is I, it? book I wrote with Andy. Um, about his his story and uh, the joke is always you know did you really did a 29 year old really write a memoir but it's uh, but it's something different well, than, a, than a, a memoir lot, right? and he's yeah he, and he has a fascinating story life, so. yeah, he, he moved to Hollywood yeah. from Ohio at, at age 18 and lived in his car and then mm. off we go you know but uh, but oh, anyway man, I'm looking forward to that I'll, I'll pick it up he's yeah he's he's so great um, mm. but but yeah I uh where was I going with that? Oh, in, in covering that scene and often covering bands whose music, as you said, didn't feel like it was for me. Yeah. The writer in me would look for the story and I would find that within each of those bands, there was some kind of fascinating story, whether it was formative years and childhood and parents yeah. and uh, rivalries with other bands or drugs or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, a colleague of ours, uh, you probably know, uh, I used to work at Roadrunner, but he's also a journalist. Uh, Phil Freeman. No, I don't know Phil. Uh, well, I <laughs> he uh, subtweeted me, as they say, once I had a cover on Asking Alexandria come out, and I had a picture of Danny Warson up on the yeah. cover, laying in a coffin. And yeah. Phil did this. He didn't. He didn't tag me in it, but he posted on Facebook. You know, I just read this cover story on Asking Alexandria. It was a very inside baseball journalism thing. Um, and there's, you know, I, I, I just read 7,000 words on asking Alexandria and couldn't find one about their music. <laughs> and I saw it and I replied to it, not offended, but just like, mm -hmm. I'd see your point. And I said, first of all, there is an, there is, there is an entire paragraph about the music. <laughs> uh, but to your point, I said, uh, this story is written, isn't written to explain to people what asking Alexandria sounds like. And because quite frankly, you can explain that in a couple sentences. It's got really heavy breakdowns and really big melodic radio yeah. choruses and they yeah. play on the warp tour and you know, it takes a couple sentences to figure that out. I said, this, this story is about the people in the band and about mm -hmm. the story behind the hows and whys of, of this record and the cycle. I, I totally understood his point, but I also think to, to bring us kind of full circle back to your yeah. earlier point about magazines and, a list like Don Kay's list, 7,000 words about asking Alexandria isn't selling records for them. And that if it's 7,000 words of describing what they sound like no. or about their, you, and, you, and there was an era where you could do that with say a Metallica cover story in 1987, where you're explaining, oh, here's this massively. movement, here's this scene yeah, yeah. and here's yeah. all the things a it draws from. could make or break a band. Yeah. By the way, if yeah. you enjoy yeah, I was going to say, if you enjoyed that bit of feedback, 
from the article you wrote, then you're going to love the feedback you get on your first book oh, because boy. it's a whole it's a whole world of pain um, <laughs> that you're going to that you're very welcome to join me in. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. I'm already. No, I'm, I'm, I'm being flippant. I'm being flippant. I, I mostly for me, I've written uh, 33 books now in about 20 years and i would say 90 oh. percent of the feedback i've had has been positive and then but it's well, that's of course, encouraging well the empty can rattles the most right you know right. don't yeah, read the no, comments I, I, as they I, say you get to the point where you just don't care anymore i mean like you, you, you don't take the, the praise seriously and you definitely don't take the uh negative criticism seriously but um it is interesting if the, if the book gets some good reviews and it sells well and you get a nice check then really that's what that's what matters and if you have, have done a good job according to your best skills um that's and you get the, the and you, you and if you do get the, the praise of your peers that's important you know and the support of your of your colleagues um but yeah maybe that's changed as well you know i mean when i started writing there was no social media people would email you <laughs> i got some choice emails tucked away which i'll probably print sometime oh this is well, great advice by the way uh, this is this, this is a whole other we could do a whole other hour where i want to talk to you about this because oh, yeah well that's, you know this hour has gone by very quickly you know we haven't really even talked about metallica about we that, haven't but, you know. yeah um and that and that yeah and that, that's my first book and i'm most of the way through uh what, what's looking to be the second mm. and, and yeah and that's definitely something i would like to continue and, and do more of and a lot of it does kind well, of hinge on how the first one's received oh yeah i mean as the editor of a magazine you know people say to me um, well, how long have the magazines got left, Joel? You know, how long have they got left? And I said, well, I don't know, a few years, a couple of decades. Whereas books, however, have a much longer lifespan than that because people like to buy an, art, an artifact. Don't they? Um, and I think it's a, it's a great thing you're doing. Get into books because that's, that's something that will outlive all of us. You know, when we're dust, your book will still exist in physical form. And when that is gone, it will still exist in digital format. And your great-grandchildren will be reading it. And that's an important thing. Most people can't don't get to live their lives with that kind of legacy. So uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Well, that just made my month. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad, you. glad you take my opinion so seriously. It is I do. I, I've, I've looked up to you for a long time and I'm a big fan oh, well, of your work. And, extremely kind of you. And, right? uh, I appreciate that. That, mean, that means keep, a ton coming from you. If you keep writing, writing things and keep hanging about after a while, <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say. I was going to say you become a classic rock band, but that's not, not quite the looking for. Yeah, are we, are we reaching the classic rock band status as, as, it, as scribes? Probably, probably as good as we can hope for. I mean, yeah. at this point. And you know, honestly, the greatest gift from, from Andy uh, in, in choosing me to write the book with him mm. is in other conversations that I've had over the years about potentially writing a book with this person or that person, the question that inevitably comes up from someone in their camp is, well, what other books have you done? Mm. So now I have an answer to that question. There you go. <laughs> that well, was, I mean, that was know, often, you... often a, a, a roadblock, right? You can't, well, can't you write a book a if of... you haven't written one yet, but you can't. Yeah, but you, you can always say, look, I have a hundred hours of film, TV journalism and a million words in sure. print and magazine. So that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty damn good. True. True, true. Um, well, great. Well, that I, I actually would love to keep going, but I have another interview that I have to start. That's all right. Um, I'd love to come back sometime if you have if you have uh, uh, the availability. You once again, you've taken the words right out of my mouth because I was the uh, next thing I was going to say is I got I want to have you back like immediately. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, we'll make, uh, we'll we'll make a date for that. that Way more to talk Definitely. about. Definitely, and we can talk about how uh, metal was is much much better than it ever was. Or worse. yeah, yeah, and we could yeah, or we could talk about the secret influence of aha on emperor which 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 came up in a conversation in an interview i was doing two years ago well before he did that cover song well you know aha awarded a major prize to dim with board gear right hmm. all right well seriously every year aha oh like endowed. oh like literally physically handed them yeah, an award they get, oh. no, there's, there's like a, a, a prize it's some like giant sum of money that they give a prominent norwegian artist every year and one year it went to Dimmu Borgir, Aha's money. I'm, I'm not kidding you, you can Google it. So when you say it's the influence of Aha on Emperor, they, right? It's literally Literal, there. They funded yeah. Dimmu Borgir. So yeah. fair play to those guys. Well, I thought I was being a bit cheeky, as you might say, in, when interviewing uh, Isan uh, a couple yeah. of years ago. And uh, by mentioning before, I was like, hey, before we get started, I just want to tell you, given that you are a prominent figure from Norway, one of my favorite bands, Mm. My childhood was aha, and I didn't think that was going to go anywhere other than him, mm. you know, shrugging his shoulders and going, "Yeah, they're 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 from here and they're popular." 
And instead he went into, a, we had a big conversation about what a big fan he is. And he said, and I still haven't figured out what it is exactly. And maybe this is homework for both of us, but he said, <laughs> he says, if you go back and you listen to anthems at the welcome, there is a melody lifted from aha. And this brings us full circle to you talking about cannibal corpse and the melody. So there's a melody lifted from aha that is in the second emperor album. (laughs) That's amazing. You know, he just covered an aha. That's what I'm saying is then two years later when he cut, when he covers that song, a very faithful cover. um, That was it. Manhattan skyline. Is that what Yeah. Which was an odd choice. Uh, Not the song I would have picked for him to do, but, uh, Hmm. but I love the song, but. Yeah. But it's a weird, it's a weird song even on that record. But, uh, I, but I, yeah, I, I must've been one of the only people reading Blabbermouth that day to go, Oh, that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> That's a scoop. Right. Now you've said that I'm going to have to go and listen to that record. I believe it. I've met that guy a ton of times and we've had some good talks. Um, and his, his influences are many and multifarious and it doesn't surprise me one bit. As, as they should be. Uh, hmm. a, a, a bird of a feather for for both of us there you go um well awesome well thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time to do this joel oh, you come are on. no a it's pleasure, to pleasure. To it's just hilarious to me to meet someone who made the jump from duran duran it's, it's, it's literal in, in my in my <laughs> you know in my 47 years I, this is the first encounter there you go there so. you go so the average is one every 47 years <laughs> exactly. get the 94 you might find another one but i don't know <laughs> all right man thank you so much for having me on